Section One of Tales of the Uneasy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lisa Reichert. Tales of the Uneasy by Violet Hunt. The Telegram, Part One. Her mother was dead. Her life stood altered. She would be no poorer, it was not that. She was an orphan, and all her mother had had came to her. That meant seventy thousand pounds, plate, linen, and the freehold of a fine old house in Lower Seymour Street, that they had moved into a year before the old lady died. Things were no more altered socially than they were altered pecuniarily, for the Damers' set naturally corresponded, as sets do, with their postal district, and Miss Alice Damer could therefore continue to command an entrance into the best circles. Only she realized that she must henceforth enjoy all these good things to the tune of a paid companion, having no poor and amenable relations handy, whom she could draft into the household economy, and afterwards snub into a colourless bare existence. She was thirty-five, and her years did not weigh on her except mentally. The first faint physical signs of the debacle were, so far, evident to herself alone, and then only in moods of unusual depression. She was still young enough to need a companion. Her pretty red-gold hair was as red as gold, as pretty as ever, her visits to her dentists as few, her eyes as deep, and her step as elastic. Although she had given up dancing, she had made this sacrifice more from a sense of fitness, as a concession to the needs of the young girls coming up round her, and who deserved their turn on the floor, than of social necessity. As a matter of fact, she had never been really fond of that over-energetic, disordering form of amusement. She loved the world and going up and down in it immensely, and her way of enjoying parties was to sit out if it was a dance, away from the music if it was a concert, and in the back of the box if it was a play. She was a flirt. Not an outrageous, noisy, ill-bred flirt, but what is known as a quiet flirt, with many strong and efficient strings to her bow. Did one of them, being after all only catgut or mere man, snap occasionally, that is to say, get married out of the circle of her charm, Alice, in her quiet way, promptly renewed the string and supplied herself with a new admirer, as good at fetching and carrying as the old. In her mind that was the chief use of admirers, to prevent one's looking neglected. Of course one never really was. She was a woman of many affairs. She liked living not exactly in hot water, but in water at least warm, and was seldom seen talking to women though she was quite nice to them, as intrusive but law-permitted aliens in the Pays du Cour. None of her friends would have dared to ask her to a lady's lunch or any overwomaned party. A man had always to be got for Alice, else she would have been hurt, and quite unable to play her part properly. She was unused to, unversed in her own sex. On the other hand, she played fair, and never took other women's men, or encouraged their husbands to play the pretty game with her. People said that for her, that she never made women unhappy, only men. 
she was never very sorry for a man's love troubles for she had a theory that a hopeless passion or two did a man no harm and that the more he proposed the merrier for him she never told anyone how many offers she had refused men often did propose to her and she refused them all and boasted that she had never been engaged for even an hour and that no man had ever kissed her the bloom was not off alice unless so much mental coming and going in her courts had produced some such subtle effect why should i marry she used to say to everard jenkins good old welsh family when he importuned her to relax her rule in his favour and even go so far as to making the vast experiment of marriage with him as her partner there is no earthly hurry no but perhaps a heavenly one he had inanely replied i may never marry at all girls economically don't need to marry as they used to and at any rate i am independent so far as money goes so the way is clear for you to marry for love i don't think i shall ever fall in love then take a man you like and you like me everard was not at that time sufficiently far gone in love to make him inattentive to and unappreciative of the use and value of cheek in discussing such matters with his princess yes i like you but as you know i don't love you and i am so made that i must be quite sure in my own mind that i am absolutely positively incapable of loving madly before i let myself go with any one even you don't you see in the interests of morality one must be sure of oneself or there might be catastrophe with a strong nature like mine no said everard patiently and earnestly there would i am sure be no danger of that with you your husband might feel perfectly safe in your hands thanks why do you say that because the power to flirt never implies the power to love i am afraid well everard you can't say that i flirt with you she exclaimed noisily oh no your knowing that i am desperately dully serious about you protects me a little and you do pay me the doubtful compliment of taking no trouble to attract me you honestly never put your best foot foremost with me or pose like a heroine to your most humble valet yes alice agreed laughing a little bitterly i promise you never to encourage you in any way i would let you see me with my hair in curlers if i wore them anything to convince you of the purity of my intentions i simply will not have you say that i lead you on or encourage you my god alice i don't say it i know well enough i am a damned fool and have nothing whatever to go on a fool to love me a fool because i am a lonely man and i don't like being a lonely man and yet this feeling of mine towards you will keep me so so far as i can see i don't suppose i shall ever marry i know i shan't that's what you've done alice and i may just as well go ahead and make my will in your favour for i shall never have any wife or child to leave my money to i feel that it will be so really my poor everard she tried very hard not to look flattered this is most sad i couldn't have believed there was such fidelity left in this wicked world and to tell you the truth i don't believe it possible even now 
I'm really not vain enough, if I am cruel. Not so very vain, and not a bit cruel. I honestly believe if you thought you could get up any sort of feeling for me, you'd say so. You never will say it to me, but to someone else, I suppose. You are human, like everyone else. It's all rot about not being capable of love. Every woman is, or is able to think she is, and that's enough in a great many cases. Oh, you'll find the man sooner or later, and I, well, I shall wish you every happiness, and be godfather to the kids. Nice little flirts, kids, with pretty hair like yours. Now I'd better go away to the temple and make that will, as I've quite made up my mind to die a bachelor. Nonsense, said Alice sharply, more touched than she liked to own. I won't even be friends with you if you go on like that. Leave things open. Not for me, of course. It must be quite understood that I don't accept any such sacrifice of your life as waiting for me would entail. Believe me, I know myself, and I know, somehow, deep down, that I shall never fall in love with you. That being the case, don't you think I should be really behaving rather badly, if I allowed you to think that you could ever melt me by faithful service and little things like that? All right, beggars don't choose. You shall have the faithful service all the same, and it shall not hope to melt you. Will that suit you? "'We'll leave it at that, then,' said Alice, permitting the young and promising barrister to kiss her hand, and devote his wits and energies, and the rest of his life, to her use. She could always find work for him. He did it all as he had said. He was thus able to be about the house. That was his retaining fee. Whether it was painful to him or not, in his present state of mind, to see so much of Alice Damer, it was a fact that he did have to meet her continually she sent little business-like notes round to his chambers nearly every day short sensible not encouraging notes he made all the arrangements for their journeys and their parties and their entertaining of their friends he saw her mother and herself off to the continent every year when they went to do their cure was attentive at the carriage door bought the railway literature and pumped up the air cushions he could always be counted upon to be odd man at a dinner-party, and if it was humanly possible, and sometimes when it was inhumanly impossible, threw over any other important engagement that he may have had, important to himself, be it understood. His clerk thought he led a dog's life. What Everard thought was never recorded. What Alice thought was simply this— that Everard liked doing little things for her, and was by temperament a born bachelor, although he still cultivated that touching delusion that he was lonely and wanted a companion. It was only that he wanted her, and seeing her this way, every day, off and on, was really the pablum his soul cried for. Other and more full-blooded men would not have been content with so merely spiritual a sustenance. At any rate, he never showed any tendency to stray from the portal and outer courts of this austere temple of respectful worship. Alice had no cause for jealousy. Her victim never twisted or wriggled on the hook of her attraction. His ready smile on seeing her flourished as ever, only there was more drawing in it, as expressed by the hatchet lines in his mouth. In short, Everard grew thin. His chest was rather narrow. He coughed, 
often and tiresomely. Lung symptoms seemed to be developing themselves there. Alice, out of gracious regard for him, had suggested his accompanying her mother and herself to the Riviera one winter, instead of seeing them off and falling back into the fog of Charing Cross as usual. He had refused on the score of his pressing work, promising, however, to wear a respirator on the very bad days. It was a pity he had not gone with them that time. For all that she was a flirt, and men were her material, Alice didn't know them at all. She met a man out at Cap Martin, a man Everard would have seen through at a glance. This common adventurer made love to her. He managed to engage the poor flirt's affections. There was nothing in it, no magnetism. He was a better flirt than she, that was all. And while Alice had money, he had none. She returned and confided her woes. Everard had his work cut out for him. He interviewed this handsome predatory person, and succeeded in retrieving Alice's letters for her. It was a supreme bit of service, and Alice was truly grateful to him. The wretch went out of her life, leaving her in a rather deplorable condition of nerves and mind and Everard threw himself into the situation as no man who is not deeply attached to a woman, unpicturesquely lovesick for another, could have done. He visited her every day, and comforted and consoled her, by allowing her to talk about it all. Alice's grief furnished the theme for many a dreary summer's afternoon, when Everard used to take her up the river to distract her mind. It was a trip she had always firmly refused to take with him, in the old days on the score of propriety, an excuse that masked dread of boredom. Boredom was not in it now, it was acute tragedy. Poor Alice forgot all propriety when once she was towed well out into the midstream. There she gave way and allowed the echoes of Datchet and Lalaham to echo with her sobs, for she had been awfully hard hit. Once, indeed, Everett remembered, but with no pleasure sense of a lover's guerdon gained, she had leaned forward in the boat with the abandon of despair and kissed her patient confidant. It was the only woman's kiss Everard had ever received in his life, and it had tasted of salt tears. Still, it was a love symbol, and the nearest Alice could do in the line he wished, or had wished, for perhaps he did not now desire her, quite so urgently as he had done. Everard had never been handsome at the best of times, but that summer season rang the final knell of his good looks. His crow's feet and his cheek and jaw lines were awful. Alice herself noticed them. "'I believe it is you, Everard, who are going to break down now,' she said to him once when it was all over, her misbegotten love buried fathoms deep and she cared to look round her a little and notice what other people were doing. The very violence of her passion had perhaps caused the flame to burn itself out in this young lady of the world, this parlour warrior, this heroine of a hundred ballroom fights. At any rate, her emotional crisis passed away, leaving her, who was already hard, a little harder than before, to Everard's business precautions, and his adroit playing of animated safety-valve to the deserted one, Alice, luckily for her, had not needed to confide in a member of her own sex. 
her zest for the noble game of flirtation had died down too she was less interested in men and rather more interested in herself than she had been and condescended to enjoy a party even if she came away from it without the tendrils of a heart of sorts reaching after her her superficial bloom returned she had never lost only temporarily mislaid it she was a fundamentally good-looking woman with neat regular features a good figure and perfect constitution to fall back on to everard's satisfaction she now proved the validity of these fine assets of beauty but she had spoken a true word in jest everard jenkins went and had a bout of brain fever he was popularly supposed to have broken down from overwork alice damer and her mother were most kind and solicitous and as fussy about him as they could be without setting the public tongue a-wagging alice now worshipped on the altar of convention again and would not have been seen up the river with everard or near his rooms in paper buildings for anything her mother was old and unwieldy so they wrote they were quite careful but as it was old friends opined that miss damer was going to settle down and take up with her old and tried suitor when taxed with this by the ill-bred privileged she maintained boldly that there was nothing in it that she and mr jenkins thoroughly understood each other so they did everard was grateful without any expectation of favours to come and thanked her prettily for grapes and books and things he recovered and went about his own business as usual alice's business was not pressing just now so the two rather lost sight of each other alice holding him in reserve for future extremity she supposed sometimes aloud that he was busy getting on and making up for the lost time in his illness there could be no woman in it rather a wreck poor old jenks his friends observed with affection for he was a general favourite with men and most unfairly persisted in attributing his state not to the illness he had undergone but to alice damer's fast and loose playing she heard this but tossed her head confident in the good understanding that persisted between her and her slave i have never encouraged everard he knows i haven't she declared to her mother he says so i think you have been quite horrid to him alice was the old lady's single solitary pronouncement on the situation she said this lying on her bed during what was to prove her last illness alice was gentle and kind but repressed all sentimental leanings on the part of the invalid who had a mother's natural wish to see a vagrant-hearted daughter settled in love and marriage before she died mother how often must i tell you that everard mr jenkins and i understand each other she repeated coldly she had never chosen to call everard by his christian name though her mother who was fond of him always insisted on doing so and everard obviously liked it and clung to this side entry into the intimacy of alice's family it did not matter alice and he as before said understood each other and old ladies every one knows have a way of attaching themselves to young men and selecting their daughters suitors for them by the light of their own predilections 
and now her dear silly old mother was dead and buried and the proud sensible daughter sat all alone in the big seymour street drawing-room with the three large windows that needed so much stuff for their curtains and the beautiful adam's mantelpiece whose shelf alice could hardly see over the damers had only been in the house a year it was freehold and alice's it was rather a large and dreary abode for one young woman to inhabit permanently yet the young woman thought she meant to do so a companion she sadly supposed in that case must be procured sooner or later later preferably if she could have her way not at all alice was nearly forty though she looked younger why should she not use her age for all it was worth and establish herself on the easy footing of years of discretion nay there would be complications there her womanly instincts rebelled against the aspersion of discretion and the constant assertion of her maturity which would be involved in her adoption of that attitude she would be asked to play chaperone herself she would have to dress old no she looked so young for her age it would be ridiculous when she could as easily carry the other theory through and pose as a breakable compromisable commodity she must make up her mind to accept the duenna she must get in a woman to quarrel with it came very hard she had been used to going about alone and receiving guests by herself in this house for the last year mrs damer had been unable to dine down or preside at her own table she had appeared beautifully capped and lappeted to set the seal of chaperonage for a few minutes before dinner and then prettily said good-night to her young guests when dinner was announced alice was quite equal to it and always invited another woman preferably married to her charming dinners a companion would by the conditions of her office take part in every function quiet dinners as well as noisy ones it would be far worse than a husband for a husband would at least leave the tea-hour free all alice's serious tete-a-tetes had been used to come off then in the little room off the stairs that was really part of the hall and in no way shut off but so delightfully private little soft rosy cosy late teas had been alice's great social weapon all the more fetching were these free and easy interviews in that she wasn't in the least like an american though she did see young men alone with a mother stowed away somewhere in the upper fastnesses of the house this problem of the companion was associated with the first glimmering in alice damer's mind of the possibility of a husband's suiting at this juncture the notion of a companion precipitated him he came in by the door of convenience a husband well who was it wanted to marry her at that moment men's names long shelved came into her mind but not everard's like the poor she had him always with her he was always available but the others unaccountably enough did not rush into the arena of her requirements at once she must be growing old did people think her old she had not noticed that they did she could see no sign of the coming of crow's feet of which this backward turn of bow's feet was supposed to be ominous 
for surely a year ago plenty of potential husbands lay ready to her hand the signs of age if there were any signs were on the outside alice internally felt as fit as ever she was still game for anything in the way of social folly she could sit up as late as any one and dozed off happily the moment she got home and her head touched the pillow she did not have to read in bed or play patiences to induce sleep her figure showed no fatal early inclination to spread she didn't know what it was to sit over a fire and she proudly refused to avoid lobster salad or anything else indigestible at supper unless indeed the craving for marriage itself was a sign of age a subtle token of the need for support the birth of an instinct for clinging she rose and looked at herself in the old unbecoming empire mirror that everard had got for her at a sale at christie's once for he was a connoisseur no very few lines no look of fatigue even in a bad glass and as much colour in her hair that poor everard admired so as ever there was poor dear everard no not poor dear everard he had been growing rather slack lately and forgot her flowers and fish and game now and then he had been kind of course and considerate over her mother's death had continually called to inquire though the presence of authorized relations in the house had rendered his visits nugatory as far as she was concerned alice was formal about death she had seen much of it still she had liked to see his card in the hall though unable to ask him to come in because of aunts polly and gertrude it had been an awful unmentionable time that sort of life that everybody must lead at times when death is in the house and now it was over and the aunts had gone home making her promise to give them a month at taunton next week when she had got things a little straight and done seeing lawyers and that was over too her nerves that had been a little upset though she had expected her mother's death had righted themselves too she cried about her mother every day but only once in the day and she began to think she would like to see someone who wasn't family why should she not begin with everard when the companion had come or the husband she would have very little opportunity for tete-a-tetes with him unless he was the husband well we should see she settled that it was to be to-morrow a quite impromptu invitation if it were ceremonious she could not have him alone and she wanted him alone she set about ordering a nice little dinner for him consonant with his tastes which unluckily she did not know everard had dined in seymour street before but only on big formal occasions never alone so far as she remembered everard replied in fairly good time he did not say he was previously engaged for he knew that she would never forgive him for not throwing the other people for her but ill at least not ill but with a very bad cold as the dinner she said was quite informal might he ask her to postpone it a day or two until he had a little got the better of his cough which would make him a rather tiresome guest apart from the danger of chill to which he found himself more liable than formerly he would like to suggest saturday night his birthday what a funny old maidish letter was alice's comment all about his cold and that i never knew everard notice a cold before 
I suppose a man gets finicky living so much alone. He's no exception to the rule. I'll have to wake him up a little. His cool deferring of her invitation afforded him just that touch of masterful self-assertiveness Everard had always lacked in his dealings with this young woman. She now firmly made up her mind to marry him, that is, if he continued to carry things off so well. He would be better than a companion, and there seemed to be nobody else. End of section 1